0: Did central banks get COVID-19 right? Today on the Curious Task, I speak with Alex Salter. Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Alex Salter. Alex is an associate professor of economics in the Rawls College of Business at Texas Tech University and the Comparative Economics Research Fellow with the Free Market Institute at Texas Tech. He's also an associate editor of the Journal of Private Enterprise and a Sound Money Project Senior Fellow at the American Institute for Economic Research. He has published articles in leading scholarly journals such as the Journal of Money, Credit and Banking, the Journal of Economic Dynamics and Control, the Journal of Macroeconomics, and the American Political Science Review. His opinion pieces have appeared in The Hill, The American Conservative, U.S. News and World Report, and other outlets. Alex, welcome to The Curious Task. Thank you, Alex. It's great to be here. It's great to have you on. So our question today is, did central banks get COVID-19 right? And we will primarily be talking about the Federal Reserve, actually, which I think can also provide insight into central banking in general. But before we jump right into that, I think it's good to tour some overall concepts about monetary policy and, and central banking, both because we haven't actually had a hardcore monetary policy episode on this podcast yet. So I think it's actually quite exciting to get into that. But I also, I think it would be good to introduce those who may be unfamiliar or not as familiar with the concepts as you are to some of the ins and outs of monetary policy before we get into like COVID-19 and the response and so on and so forth. So l- let's start with something that might seem obviously just very basic to you, but I want to start from the tip of the iceberg and go right down let's differentiate between fiscal policy and monetary policy. Sometimes the media mixes this up and sometimes people do in casual conversation. So when we're talking about monetary policy here, what are we actually talking about in this conversation? How's that different from fiscal policy? What should people keep in their minds as, as we're going forward here?
1: Well, my definition of monetary policy is changing the money supply to try and meet some macroeconomic goal. Maybe you're trying to get unemployment down. Maybe you're trying to get inflation down. Whatever your macroeconomic goal is, Monetary policy means using the money supply or whatever narrow measure of the money supply that central banks control as your uh, instrument to try and get that done. Whereas fiscal policy means the direct expenditure of resources by a government. And fiscal policy is not necessarily countercyclical. right? You're not necessarily trying to fight a recession. Anytime the Congress of the United States or the Canadian Parliament spends, that's technically fiscal policy. You sometimes get people talking about the only time that you have fiscal policy is if you have a, a stimulus package or something like that. No, fiscal policy just refers to taxing and spending decisions by the legislative authority. And in terms of economic effects, the difference is the whole point of fiscal policy is to allocate resources, to direct resources to one line of production or employment as opposed to other lines of production or employment. Whereas monetary policy ideally just changes the money supply and lets the market sort out how that new liquidity is used. So there's no, strictly speaking, any allocative effects of monetary policy if it's done right. Of course, in the real world, there's always going to be some spillover onto interest rates. That's always going to change investment decisions. But ideally, right? if you, if you consider everything working right, monetary policy is about getting markets the liquidity they need to work well without impinging on relative resource allocation. Whereas again, the whole point of fiscal policy is to allocate resources.
0: Right. So when like we often hear people say just casually, there's a there's a stimulus happening or something or like these, there's forces out there trying to stimulate the economy. It's important to differentiate between the kinds of things that a government would do to quote unquote, stimulate the economy versus whatever the central bank of whatever a country is trying to do. Because as you said, one's dealing more of the framework uh, of, mo- of, of of money in the country, Uh, And the other one's dealing with, as you said, specific spending programs and taxing programs and so forth.
1: Correct. Um, This has gotten a little bit more complicated in the last 10, 12 years, ever since the 2008 financial crisis. Right. Since the way that central banks are doing monetary policy, it looks very, very different. We've had to update all the textbooks. But nonetheless, I think that's a good first approximation.
0: Let's let's drill a little further down then. So what's the Federal Reserve's role in the monetary uh, system? Specifically, when you think of the the Fed as the sort of banker's bank, we we don't need to. I know there's like hours upon hours we can do on this topic, no doubt. But just just getting a little bit into the the great nerdy stuff there. Let's get a little deeper into what exactly the the Fed does on a day to day, on an overnight basis. However, you want to talk about it.
1: Absolutely. Well, I can't resist the uh, the brief historical uh, narrative. As you sort of indicated with your talking about the Fed as a banker's bank. Uh, the Federal Reserve was actually not founded with the intent of being a central bank. It was supposed to be something closer to a clearinghouse for the then existing national banking system. And then as various crises like World War One, World War II, and uh, events after that unfolded, uh, the Fed found itself experimenting with its powers to support the market for government debt and started engaging in proto-monetary policy, proto-central banking practices. And you know these things just sort of happen politically. You get founded to do one thing, and then a generation later, you're doing something completely different. So we have a central bank, even though technically there was never any legislative decision to have a central bank. What the Fed does now, it actually wears a couple of hats. Uh, the main one that people know it for is the famous dual mandate. In 1977, Congress instructed the Fed to pursue full employment and price stability. So that's sort of the Fed's mandate to fight recessions, to keep what economists call aggregate demand more or less stable. And usually it's used changes in the money supply to try and do that. So if it looks like a a recession is looming, the Fed will increase the money supply by purchasing assets. Uh, If it looks like inflation is running a little bit too high, the Federal Reserve will decrease the money supply by selling assets. That's sort of its short run stability role. Now, the Federal Reserve also has a number of other roles, especially since the 2008 financial crisis. The Dodd-Frank financial reforms, the big post-financial crisis legislation passed in the United States, also gave the Fed a significant regulatory role. And so if you've ever heard the phrase macro policy, that's just a fancy economist way of saying, we want an entity or several government entities to be responsible for managing systemic risk, risk in the financial system as a whole. And so ever since the financial crisis of 12 plus years ago now, the Federal Reserve has also been engaging in that. Uh, I would argue not very well, but that's what they've been doing.
0: And we'll get into to that exactly. Um,
1: but but just actually, let's drill a, a bit deeper into that
0: uh, as well. I think you provided like a, a very good high level trace of exactly what the Federal Reserve is, is supposed to be doing in in general. But what you did already touch on, and I want to get a little deeper into it, sort of what it looked like before the 2008 financial crisis and then what it looked like after. Again, we'll get to COVID-19 in a sec, but let's, let's talk about that time frame. So t- typically, uh, a day, a week, a month, or a year in the life of the Federal Reserve before 2008? What did that kind of thing look like? You already started that. I just want to get a little deeper
1: into it. Yeah. And actually, this is also COVID relevant, right? Because we can't tell the story of COVID policy responses without telling the story of how the operating framework for monetary policy changed back in 2008 to 2010, sort of the the changes that happened back then. So once upon a time, monetary policy was about buying and selling assets. Like I said before, if the Federal Reserve wanted to expand the money supply, it would buy short-term government bonds, uh, not directly from the government, from an approved list of dealers in the secondary market, it would credit their accounts, take the bonds off their books, put cash on their books, and then that money would that new liquidity would eventually find its way into the banking system. The banks would loan it out through the normal money multiplier effect of banks banks making loans. Uh, the broader money supply would rise, and that would have a stimulative effect on economic activity. Again, in reverse, if the Fed thought that things were were a little bit uh, if inflation was too high. If inflation was at a level that started to impinge on a on market participants' ability to write contracts or do whatever else they needed to do to, to allocate resources, they would just do the opposite. They would start selling assets, short-term government debt usually, take that off its books, put it on a, a private investor's books, take the money, and basically take it out of circulation. Uh, electronically, of course, especially in recent years, all of this is done by you know manipulating ones and zeros right. on electronic pleasures, it, which it, is fine. It's, right? it's not but Brink's
0: trucks, literally.
1: Yeah, I mean, we can we can use the metaphor of the printing press without any, any loss of generality. Right. That's what we always do with our students anyways. In 2008, though, the monetary policy framework changed significantly. So that's when the Congress of the United States gave the Federal Reserve permission legislatively to start paying interest on excess reserves. Now, this gets back to the Fed's role as a banker's bank. The various banks that are a member of the Federal Reserve System maintain bank accounts at the Fed. And they're supposed to keep something like 5%, 10%, whatever the required reserve ratio is in terms of high powered money and their deposits at the Fed. And so, one of the things that the Federal Reserve did following the great financial crisis was it massively purchased a range of non traditional assets, including long term government debt and the now infamous mortgage backed securities. But also because the Fed was worried about the inflation that would result it started paying banks interest on excess reserves. So if you have a reserve ratio of 10%, the Fed previously only paid you interest on that 10%. You could hold as much in your account as you wanted, right? keep it out of circulation, but you wouldn't get paid interest on that. Now though, with that legislative change, any excess reserves also get interest payments. So in other words, you're getting paid by the Fed to keep that newly created money parked in bank accounts at the Fed. What the Fed, in essence, did was buy assets from the private sector to try and stabilize private sector balance sheets and then borrow that money back from private private investors so they didn't loan it out. And what that did was it kept all that new liquidity held at the Fed. If you look at the monetary aggregates and the various data that's publicly available, excess reserves skyrocketed because, again, economic uncertainty was high. Why try and make an investment that couldn't work out when the Federal Reserve was going to pay you just to keep your money there? So to a point, excuse me, to a point this policy worked, it did prevent massive increases in inflation, but it also made the recovery unnecessarily slow because monetary policy can only promote a recovery if the newly created liquidity actually circulates throughout the economy. But it didn't circulate, it stayed in bank vaults. Why? Because the Federal Reserve paid banks not to lend out the new money. So we, we, we tamed inflation, which is good, but it came at the cost of a speedy and full recovery, which is very, very bad.
0: And, and as you were saying, this wasn't just the, the, the story of, oh, this is what happened between 2007 to 2008. The changes that happened and what the uh, Federal Reserve was, allo- was allowed and able to do during this time sets the stage moving forward. That is to say, all, all that stuff is now precedent. I suppose it's on the books. This is sort of... the the additional tools in their toolbox, if you will, to handle any crisis that that comes beyond that time. That is right.
1: And so economists would say that we've switched from what was called a corridor system for monetary policy to a floor system for monetary policy. In a corridor system, the Federal Reserve uses a short-term interest rate, the rate at which banks charge each other for loans on an overnight basis. And that's sort of its barometer for the stance of monetary policy. It's sort of like a weather vane. And so if the Federal Reserve wants to engage in expansionary policy in the short run, because there's more liquidity in the banking system, once the Fed engages in expansionary policy, that specific short-term interest rate should go down only in the short run. In the long run, it's going to come back up. But using that as sort of your barometer for the stance of monetary policy, if the Fed wanted to engage in open market operations, they would tell the public, they would tell markets, we're going to lower our target for the federal funds rate. Now, however, the federal funds rate is almost irrelevant because what matters is the interest rate paid on excess reserves. And once market interest rates start to approximate the interest rate paid on excess reserves, banks don't have any incentive to loan out their excess liquidity. So they're just sitting on tons and tons of piles of cash. So on the one hand, that keeps inflation low and all else being equal, lower inflation is a good thing. It makes it easier to write long-term contracts, uh, it doesn't arbitrarily redistribute purchasing power. There are all sorts of reasons that you want inflation to be low and predictable rather than high and/or variable. The downside, or at least one of the downsides is the Federal Reserve's balance sheet can now become arbitrarily large without creating inflation. The Fed can just keep on purchasing assets and purchasing assets and purchasing assets. And as long as it keeps on paying banks not to lend, there's going to be no upward inflationary pressure. In the pre- in previous years, Upticks in inflation would give the Fed information about when to back off. Right now, the recovery is starting; prices are starting to go up. It's time to ease up on the on the monetary gas pedal. Right now, however, that that feedback mechanism is completely broken. The Federal Reserve's balance sheet went from under one trillion dollars on the eve of the 2008 financial crisis to over four and a half trillion by around two, uh, 2015, and now it's about eight trillion today. That's a huge increase in just the total volume of assets that the central bank holds. And normally you would expect that massive increase, right? Basically, an eightfold increase in the most narrow measure of the money supply to create massive inflation. But it's not because it's not circulating. And again, I want to emphasize if that were the only thing that's going on here, lower inflation would be welcome. But we're purchasing lower inflation, quote unquote, at the price of giving the Federal Reserve massive power to engage in credit allocation and other resource allocation. And as we said at the beginning of this show that's not what we want we don't want monetary policy directly allocating resources there's no reason to suspect that the central bank can allocate resources more efficiently or effectively than market actors just trying to trying to achieve their objectives
0: i think in one of your articles you sort of summed this up with the turn of phrase that the fed is no longer content to be referee if you will but intends to be a player in the
1: game yeah that i think was an article from that was probably one of my aier articles and i've been I've been pretty critical of what the Federal Reserve has done in recent years because this credit allocation process really scares me. It basically means that the central bank is picking winners and losers, right. And that's not something that you want an entity with a monopoly on the creation of money to do. There's almost unlimited potential for the Fed to allocate credit to politically favored causes. And again, the Fed is a creature of Congress, although Congress has often often been lax in holding the Fed to account. Technically, the Fed has to do what Congress tells it, and so if the politicians who are on short-term election cycles and know that people don't like paying taxes but do like receive uh, do like receiving public output, right? They do like government spending. They just don't like paying for it. If all of a sudden the Fed can allocate resources, then you might be tempted as a congressman or a senator to use the Fed's balance sheet as an instrument for advancing your political projects, rather than financing it via taxation. You finance it via money printing. And that's sort, of the, that's sort of the nightmare scenario, right? When you're printing money to finance government projects, you've officially entered loony territory. Nothing good comes that way.
0: Right. And I actually have a couple of questions for you about the the bigger discussion of independence of the federal reserve or any central bank but i'm going to park that for now because before we jump into a couple things like that and the, and the covid 19 discussion specifically just a quick sort of di- digression if you will again and i know each of these is like ours unto itself but uh for instance like uh canada obviously has a central bank and a central bank system uh in what ways are or is the federal reserve system similar to what other central banks around the world specifically like canada let's say do and in what ways is is it different Again, disclaimer. Hours in each direction we could go. But, you know, I'm just thinking and I made a note to ask you because, you know, uh, let me let me give you an example in the 2000 2007- 2008 financial crisis we we had heard a lot a lot of things in Canada for instance just the Canadian perspective that in the states of course the crisis was a problem but if you get, went a couple layers deeper deeper there were people talking about the Federal Reserve and its role et cetera, the quantitative easing and, and all there was sort of a discussion about whether or not that, that was good or bad nevertheless one of the constant refrains in Canada was sort of like yes we have a central bank but it's a lot more stable the central bank and the banking system here is a lot better because of XYZ X, you know ABC all that to say, um, is, is that sort of, um, in, in your mind, uh, an overblown sort of claim, or are there are crucial differences that you see between the Federal Reserve and the Canadian banking system, for instance, or other ones that that should give someone looking at the Federal Reserve more pause and saying, hey, this is very different than what other countries are
1: doing? There are several differences. I would actually say that most of the differences between the Canadian banking system and the US banking system are historical rather than contemporary. Well, throughout its history, Canada did have a phenomenally stable banking system. Uh, for most of its history, it didn't have a central bank. The central bank was only created sometime in the early 20th century. And uh, one statistic that I always like citing is that during the Great Depression, right, in the, in the 1930s, late 1920s, early 1930s, going on and off again throughout that decade, uh, the United States experienced something like 8,000 bank failures. Over that same time period, Canada experienced one bank failure. And that was because the bank got caught committing fraud. It had nothing to do with uh, instability due to the depression or anything like that. Right. So even adjusting for the fact that the US had many more banks per capita, right? this is just, it's a phenomenal comparison. The Canadian banking system was historically stable because it wasn't hampered by a couple of regulations that the United States always had and insisted on imposing on the banking system. Uh, In the US, the banking system was kept inefficiently Sensitive to shocks in the economic system because one we were very against branch banking So you couldn't up, you couldn't open up a second branch to sort of uh, spread your risk across geographic geographic location And also we had pretty strict requirements that forced banks to hold a certain portion of their capital in the form of government debt so if you wanted to be a bank you basically had to buy X dollars worth of bonds for every amount of notes that you issued in the course of your business day uh, post those bonds to the state comptroller, and then that was sort of the limit on what you could do to your note supply. Well, that obviously made the money supply in the United States notoriously unresponsive to the needs of commerce. And so, of course, there were regular booms and busts. Uh, you didn't have either of those regulations for the most part in Canada. And so for that reason, even as the US banking system was shook by several panics in the 19th century, the Canadian system was doing more or less fine. Uh, the US system and the Canadian system started to dovetail more in the era of central banking. Although the Canadian central bank has what we might call, what economists sometimes call a true corridor system, whereas the, the US Federal Reserve operates on what's called the pseudo corridor system. The difference is the U.S. the US central bank, the Fed conducts monetary policy where it used to primarily by buying and selling assets whereas the Canadian Central Bank primarily conducts monetary policy by borrowing or loaning money at a pre-specified interest rate. And that sort of keeps interest rates on an even keel. And so it's a slightly different mechanism. In response to the financial crisis of 2008, I thought the Canadian Central Bank did a better job of not throwing the kitchen sink at the thing. there There was an aggressive policy response. An aggressive policy response is what you would want when financial markets were about to melt down. I just think that what the Fed did was unnecessarily expansive and risky compared to how Canada handled it. Um, They're closer together in terms of the quality of their policy responses. I think in the COVID-19 era, you do see a lot of direct allocation of credit by the central bank on Canada's part, right? Supporting municipal government debt markets, for example, that sort of thing makes me uneasy. I don't like the fiscal monetary barrier being transgressed because once that precedent is set, as you indicated before, it's very, very hard to walk back from that. Well, I think that what what the Bank of Canada did is not as bad as what the U.S. Federal Reserve did. There are still some worrying signs, and we'll have to see how that plays out in the coming years.
0: Right. No, excellent. Thank you. I think that was a great, great way to Explain how what happened there beyond the Federal Reserve and into at least the Canadian banking system. So let's move on from from that sort of base level discussion of what central banks, specifically the Federal Reserve, are supposed to be doing. Kind of what happened pre and post 2008, and get into I guess the the next crisis, which is specifically the COVID 19 situation. So again, let's let's go back up to the tip of the iceberg and, and drill down, so we can walk through sort of the the experiment and mental experiment and paint the picture. I or you, whoever wants to be it, is the is the chairman of the Federal Reserve. We have our team around. Around us, COVID 19 is clearly starting to become a problem. Economically speaking, what are the kinds of things we're worried about at the Federal Reserve when we hear, okay, we got this pandemic starting
1: and lockdowns are going to start? That's a great question. What I would be worried about in the short run is economic stability in terms of aggregate demand on the one hand and the integrity of the financial system on the other hand. So the first one of those is just about overall economic activity. Right, Are consumption patterns, investment patterns continuing to unfold and flow as they previously were, as denominated in currently valued dollars? The second one of those has to do with whether a sudden deterioration in financial business balance sheets are going to cause spillover effects that cause a cascading series of failures in the banking system. So that second thing, by the way, that was the big deal back in 2008. Right. The, the first thing, economic stability was also a concern, but it was really the health of the financial system that was not looking so good. This time, it was more closely to being reversed. In March, April, May of last year, there is evidence that the financial system was stressed. There is no evidence that it was about to melt down in hmm. the same way that it was in 2008. There are various risk indices, risk measures that the central bank keeps track of. You can take a look at the financial risk index, for example and it was elevated as you would expect when there's a flight to liquidity in the banking system right as everybody started realizing that covid was going to be really bad there was a flight to safety people getting out of the liquid assets and trying to buy more liquid assets like short-term government debt or even just get cash even just get money market accounts or something like that so there was a spike in financial system stress but we can handle spikes so long as it's not a nightmare scenario so not as, so long as it's not a meltdown scenario and this time it wasn't And the way that you know it wasn't is that Jerome Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, went on 60 Minutes and said so. They weren't concerned with the integrity of the financial system. Despite that, they continued to engage in a bunch of policies that are only appropriate if you think the financial system was going to melt down. So all those new credit policies that the Federal Reserve started in the early days of the COVID-19 crisis, loaning money directly to large corporations that have nothing to do with the financial sector, loaning money directly to state and local governments, none of that should have been done. And to be fair, at its highest peak, that was only a small fraction of the Fed's balance sheet. But again, it's about precedent. If we've done it once, it's probably going to be too tempting not to do it again. The Federal Reserve has no business underwriting credit markets for local government debt. There's no plausible link between the fiscal health of the state of Illinois and the overall financial system. There's no plausible link for large corporations that don't have anything to do with finance. The Federal Reserve loaned money to Coca-Cola during the COVID-19 crisis. I may have missed it when I was in graduate school, but I am unaware of any link between soda sales going down and the financial system collapsing. I'm pretty sure that's not a thing. So that just should not have happened. In terms of the more narrow monetary response, just outright purchase of conventional assets to keep the money supply on an even keel, I actually think the Federal Reserve did an okay job on that. In fact, I, if anything, I would have liked to have seen it go even more than it did on conventional monetary policy. What you saw in the earliest months of the COVID-19 crisis was a big collapse in inflation expectations. The market basically anticipated sudden, suddenly lower price increases for the next several years starting in March, April, May of last year. And that's actually a signal that the market thinks that total spending on final goods and services is going to collapse unexpectedly, or at least in an unanticipated fashion. Stabilizing total expenditures is pretty much what the Federal Reserve is supposed to do, right? That's what you want the money supply authority to be doing. Now, those expectations came back up pretty quickly once the money supply started picking up. So I don't think the Federal Reserve did a bad job with its orthodox monetary policy. I think its overall crisis response was bad because it focused too much on financial finagling and not enough on small orthodox monetary policy, right? Just the playbook. And I think that that would have been enough to stabilize markets without getting into any of this credit allocation stuff that the Federal Reserve frankly has no business doing.
0: And that is actually an excellent place to take our break. So we're gonna do so right now. Everyone, you're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Alex Salter. The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a big thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Joe Aragona, John Robson, and Ken Dubian. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, and rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to The Curious Task. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Alex Salter today. So Alex, right before the break, we were just sort of rounding off the, uh, the point of discussion we're talking about what, what the Fed did that was good if you will and what, what it did that was qu- questionable or even troublesome uh, for, for the COVID-19 crisis and and, th- and that's what I got out of your articles on the topic too right you said that it was, you know they were effective at stabilizing markets and money in the short run but some of the things that they did will have dangerous costs in the long run so just to completely round off what we were talking about before the break when you're talking about the, these dangerous costs or these these precedents that are being set it really comes down to those things that you were saying that they hadn't done before, where they go beyond thinking about the money supply and stability of markets in certain ways and get into, as you said, doing things like giving loans to Coca-Cola. These are the kind of precedents that you're worried about are the most dangerous, correct?
1: Absolutely. And the reason I'm really worried about them is when you look at them, remember that definition of fiscal versus monetary policy that we talked about at the beginning of the podcast? The Federal Reserve stepped over the monetary fiscal divide. What the Fed was doing when it started allocating credit was fiscal policy. You're not actually allocating resources when you increase the money supply You're just getting the market more liquidity in general. But when you make loans, you're deciding who gets a scarce resource, credit. Right? Credit and money are not the same thing. Money is just a means of purchasing, whereas credit is actually an advance on future resources. Right? You're basically borrowing from, you're basically paying a privilege to transfer purchasing power from future you to present you. And the interest rate is the price of time in essence. So, when the Fed is engaging in credit allocation, it is doing fiscal policy. It's deciding we want to see more of this kind of economic activity and less of this kind of economic activity. That is not at all a proper thing for the monetary authority to be doing. Now, part of this is Congress's fault because Congress and its first big COVID bill actually authorized these programs. So, I'm equally mad at Congress for doing that, rather than uh, recognizing that the Federal Reserve should not have been a party to those plans. But I'm also mad at the Federal Reserve for not standing up and saying, look, we'll do this because we have to. We're required by law to obey Congress. But this is very, very risky. And we want to see these things unwound as soon as possible. And the reason that I'm mad is because previous Fed chairs did stand up and say, When Congress was considering irresponsible policy, look, no, we don't think this is a good idea and you shouldn't do it. I often am critical of Ben Ben Bernanke's uh, tenure as Fed chairman. I'm often critical of Janet Yellen's tenure as Fed chairwoman. Yet I'll give credit where credit is due. When Congress was considering bailing out General Motors and the financial crisis, and they were thinking of drawing on the Fed to help them do that, Bernanke testified before Congress. He said, this is really not a good idea. If the people's representatives in Congress assembled want to do a bailout, that's their right, that's their prerogative. But the Monetary Policy Authority just has no business doing that. We're not going to help with that. As recently as 2015, when the government was thinking of bailing out Puerto Rico because there were problems in the Puerto Rican short-term debt market for a while. And again, Congress was asking then Chairwoman Yellen, is this something that you think the Federal Reserve should help with? She said, no, I don't. The Federal Reserve has never gotten involved in bailing out local political entities. We've never used our monetary policy, uh, powers to engage in that sort of fiscal decision. If you, the Congress, want to do that, fine, but we're not going to do that. That's not our job. We have no competence in that. That's just transgressing a boundary that we shouldn't transgress. And again, fair play to both of them because that's exactly what they should have said. This Federal Reserve, though, under Chairman Jerome Powell, has not done the right thing of standing up and saying publicly, we understand the COVID crisis is a big deal. We understand that Congress wants us to do this. As a creature of Congress, we must comply. But I'm warning you, this is dangerous and you should roll it back once the waters look a little calmer and you should roll it back as soon as possible.
0: And, and as you said, when you talk about crossing that monetary into f- fiscal divide, um, it's, not only is there a variety of economic problems with that, and, and especially from the things you were talking about, but as you said, it's necessarily then becomes like a political issue and, and, and becomes a, a, a crony, a cronyism issue too. like, you know, who's getting these, th- th- this credit, like you were saying, right, like to use an old phrase from the American uh, political scene lexicon. I, I don't think, you know, for example, Joe, the plumber is going to get $2 million of line of credit from the central bank, Right. So, I mean, like, who is actually going to benefit from from this overstep from that monetary to fiscal divide? That's a, that's a troubling thing unto itself, even putting aside, as you were saying, the economic effects and why it's problematic in that way. Like, I mean, you have problems all around with this kind of thing, not to mention the political and, and, and cronyist effects
1: of this. Yes, absolutely. So one of the things that's not often well known, at least in the United States, maybe economists outside of the United States know this better. But the Federal Reserve actually ranks very low on central bank independence. It's one of the least politically independent central banks in the world. And Congress often calls Federal Reserve officials to task and berates them for not doing what Congress wants them to do. And again, that's fine in a sense, right? The Federal Reserve, their statutory authority comes from Congress. The Federal Reserve is a creature of Congress, it has to do what Congress says. There's no other way for it to work otherwise. But that necessarily comes with, as you just pointed out, some very, very risky political circumstances. If the fiscal monetary Rubicon gets crossed, and now it has, right, in the early days of the COVID crisis, it has, Congress is going to realize we have a lot more authority to use the Fed's balance sheet to finance whatever pet political project we want. So that's going to mean channeling credit to politically favored constituencies. Right. Like you just said, it's not going to be ordinary American households and businesses that come to receive the benefits from this. It's going to be large, politically connected financial institutions. It's going to be metropolitan government organizations that are that are uh, very powerful constituencies for a specific person uh, or representative in Congress. It's going to result in the politicization of monetary policy in the financial system. And that's not going to be good for short-run economic stability, and it's going to be positively nightmarish for long-run growth. You cannot have economic growth without an effective capital allocation sector. You need financial firms to channel scarce capital to where they're going to do the most good in terms of producing the most resources both now and the future. If that allocation process gets trumped, right, if politics comes to trump economics in terms of deciding who gets scarce investment capital, of course, we're going to have a growth slowdown. There's no other way for it to happen.
0: Not to mention under, undermining basic market principles, which, which some people say they adhere to, but clearly not in practice.
1: That's the tragedy, right? Everybody, everybody says that they're fan of. Everyone says that they're a fan of the market until the recession happens
0: or until their, their business is being innovated out of existence or whatever the case may be. Right.
1: We could do an entire podcast just on that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and as you're saying too, about this, like th- this risk of mass irresponsibility, basically, when that monetary fiscal divide is a, is crossed. And the funny thing is, is, it's not funny, it's sad, but it's not as if uh, Congress has been responsible with the mu- the funds they do have access to even back before the, the new millennium hit. So now with the, all these other tools in the Federal Reserve's toolbox, plus the fact, as you said, that that fiscal monetary divide is being crossed and more and more precedents are being established every five years or so. I mean, you're just creating more irresponsibility to use that term, right? Like this is the, the big risk. It's sort of a monetary political risk all, th- all thrown into this nice blender for people to potentially abuse.
1: That's pretty much What's happening? Yes, and some economists even think that the Federal Reserve is now de facto financing Uncle Sam's government budget deficits. Right? Basically, every time the United States government issues a new round of Treasury securities, the Federal Reserve ends up buying a large share of them on the secondary market. So the central bank never never loans money directly to Uncle Sam, but. Technically, it doesn't need to, right? If you're creating a demand for treasury securities on the secondary market by purchasing them from investors, then that necessarily means that investors are going to be more willing to purchase treasury securities because they know that they have a buyer waiting in the wings to purchase those treasury securities. So that's the argument. Um, I'm not sure whether I personally buy it. I'm not sure we've actually gotten to the point yet where the central bank is in any meaningful sense financing deficits, but it's certainly closer now than it's ever been. And I would worry that I would worry that because the usual feedback signal of inflation is currently not in play, that we can actually get indirect central bank financing of perpetual deficits and def, uh, deficits and debt by uh, the fiscal authority. I don't think we're there yet, but we're trending. We're trending in that direction, and hopefully we can walk that one back because that would be really scary. In one, in
0: one of your articles, uh, you you said something along the lines of that, that the fear, essentially. I'm paraphrasing you, but nevertheless, I, th- I think the essence is still the same. Where you said that ultimately that the fear of a financial crisis can just be just as powerful as an actual crisis in terms of moving the the political meters and the Federal Reserve's hand. Uh, and, and and I think that that tying it back to the point we were just exploring together that again, when you have that monetary and fiscal and political and monetary um i guess as i said you throw all that stuff in a blender and then that the rubicon has been crossed as you said this 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 fear factor rather than let's call it like stable or sound banking is, is, the, is the incentive more than anything, right? Because with the political incentives comes, as as you said in your article, like the, this sort of fear factor, whereas uh, what politicians would fear perhaps is a lot different than what a central bank should be fearing or worried about or actually looking at proper indicators on their dashboard. So I I, I think... Uh, if everything you know I've learned from you today and your articles on this topic uh, is, is coming together in my head correctly, it's it's basically leading me to believe that we'll probably see more fear as time goes on. The more tools that they add to their toolbox, will we'll, as you said, especially in the United States with the Federal Reserve, we'll be hearing a lot more about about these sort of political issues and that fear factor in terms of driving what the Federal Reserve is doing rather than all the other stuff that
1: should be driving it. That's well said, Alex. I agree. I think the problem is put yourself in the position of a central banker or put yourself in the position of an important politician on uh, the Senate Banking Committee, for example. Markets are turbulent. There's a chance that there could be something like financial panic, right? Things are stirring. Does any central banker want to be remembered as the guy that let the second Great Depression happen? Does any politician want to be remembered as the person who didn't vote to spend enough money to stop a second Great Depression? Nobody wants to go down in the history books that way but it's very hard to go down in the history books as someone irresponsible because they excessively responded to a threat that actually wasn't that big. So there's a massive asymmetry in the kinds of policy responses that you would expect based on the incentives of central bankers and politicians. Pretty much always now they're going to throw the kitchen sink at the problem whenever it looks like they're a problem. We've gotten into that habit. We're sort of in a vicious circle associated with it, and I'm not sure how we get out of it. And the really scary thing is those are exactly the sorts of activities that sow the seeds of future crises for one part, they create really bad incentives for the private sector, right? If you're a big investment bank and you know that you can load up on risk because there's an association between risk and return, right? It's a coin flip, right? lands heads, your risks pan out well, and you make extraordinary profits. If it lands tails, your risks blow up in your face, but that's okay, you're not going to go under because you have the central bank waiting to bail you out. Of course you would take an excessive amount of risk, right? You're going to Vegas with somebody else's credit card. Absolutely, yeah. Why wouldn't you take that bargain? I would take that bargain if it were offered to me, right? When you can talk about how, oh, that's unvirtuous or how that's not appropriate for private sector firms to do. I agree it's not appropriate, but they exist to make money. And at the central bank, which is supposed to be setting the rules of the game along with the politicians to make sure that the profit motive gets channeled, into socially beneficial directions, if that gets changed such that nobody's ever allowed to lose money without getting a bailout, why would we ever expect the private sector to behave responsibly? The rules of the game promote irresponsibility, right? That which is subsidized is promoted. And Uncle Sam has been for 40 years now subsidizing excessive risk. So of course, we get excessive risk. There's no shock. There's no surprise.
0: Yeah. And as you're saying, like to, to expand the metaphor with the credit card, right, if, if, if some of these risky things are happening with, let's say, credit that's already from the, ce- the central bank, uh, to, to, like I said, to expand that metaphor, you're kind of taking someone else's credit card, going to Vegas. And if you can't pay it off or you get near the limit, you just call your rich uncle to pay it off anyway. So what are we doing here?
1: It's tough. It's tough. There's a reason that these problems are so difficult to get control of once the cat's out of the bag. There are so many economists that I know that are just really upset that nobody cares about moral hazard anymore. Moral Mm -hmm. hazard is a technical term in economics for basically changing your behavior to be more risky once you're insured against a risk. And imagine that I take out a life insurance policy on myself. And then the very next day, I decide, hey, you know what I've always wanted to try? Skydiving. The problem is my insurance premium was written under the assumption that I'm not a skydiver, right? If they had known that I was going to go skydiving, they would have made my insurance payments higher right? So the price of the asset, the insurance premiums no longer adequately reflects the actual risks I'm taking. To translate that into financial sector terms, again, it gets back to this heads, you make a ton of money, tails, you get a bailout thing. You're basically subsidizing risk, promoting a socially detrimental amount of risk by the private sector. And once that process starts, the only way to stop it is for the risks to blow up in somebody's face and the politicians and central bankers to say, sorry, there's a new sheriff in town. You're on your own. That means we're going to have to put up with the hurt, right? some short-term economic hurt in order to credibly convey the message that the central bank and Congress are no longer open for business in that way. That's going to make a lot of people unhappy. It's unclear whether central bankers and politicians would be willing to do that. In fact, I don't think they're going to be willing to do that. So I hope that someone has a plan for getting us out of this vicious circle, because right now it doesn't look too good.
0: Moving away specifically from COVID-19 for the last swing of our conversation here, let's talk about the next crisis, whatever it is, hopefully not COVID-2022, but you know, some some, some could be like that that kind of thing, or whether it's another financial crisis, whatever the case may be, you've written that it's become quite clear that there should be major concern about what exactly the Fed can do to help alleviate the next crisis in in the sense that what will they actually go and do? They might make things worse in terms of the ways we've been talking about today. I want to connect this to something else I've read once. It was a couple of years ago in, in the economist where basically they had this, this metaphor going that basically said, if you consider all the tools that they keep adding to central banks and and they keep engaging in a sort of like bullet, you know, holes and sort of like the revolver that if every time you get to a crisis, they're just firing all of them. At what, at what point does, number one, do they start expanding the amount of bullets you have in the clip, if you will? That was one thing they pointed out with their metaphor. And the second thing they had is if every time a crisis comes, as you said, the kitchen sink, all the bullets are fired each time. What do you see the future of sort of monetary policy being in terms of like the next crisis? I mean, like how much lower can we go on interest rates? How much more money can be lent? I don't, I don't want to go too broad because I know there's very technical stuff. Uh, underneath all this, but I guess that, that's what I'm trying to get at. Like, help me through that. Like, w- w- what's next? I mean- Alex,
1: that's the million-dollar question, or maybe it should be the trillion-dollar question, given you know the amount of money that we're spending and printing these days. Um, I'm not too worried about interest rates. I think interest rates are low right now, primarily for underlying real structural economic reasons. Uh, basically, the supply of ca- interest rates are determined in a global market, right? No central bank. However powerful they are, even the Federal Reserve has enough power to completely control interest rates for any extended length of time. Right. You can get a divergence between the market rate and what the natural rate of interest is for a short period of time. If you're the central bank and you engage in some short-term unexpected policy, but usually that gets corrected pretty quick. I would be surprised if that effect lasted for more than a year or two. But you have people saying things like central banks have been suppressing interest rates for more than a decade now. I just, I just don't think that's that's Feasible. I don't see the argument. I think that interest rates are low right now, primarily because the supply of capital is high and the demand for capital is still relatively low. Although there are signs that's starting to change. And that might actually be a good segue into what I see as the next crisis. Right now, you have too many economists who should know better saying, we don't need to worry about all the extra government debt that's being taken on through deficit spending by Congress because interest rates are very low, so interest payments as a fraction of GDP are near historic lows. Right, Even though the debt is at historic highs, the interest payments as a fraction of GDP are actually quite low, because interest rates are very low, and the economy's grown in the meantime. All well and good, but that logic only lasts so long as interest rates stay low. Once they start to go up, the cost of debt service is going to increase very, very quickly. And once the cost of debt service increases, market participants, people who loan money to the United States government, are going to wonder, can it actually afford to pay this off? That's when we have a problem, right? Because that's when government debt by Uncle Sam, which is typically regarded as the safest of safe assets, right? It's the foundation of so many portfolios all around the world. If it ever becomes suspect, right, if investors ever start demanding significantly higher yields to loan money to the government because they're skeptical about being paid back, then we're in for a world of hurt. Now to be fair, free market economists like me have predicted over the last decade or so, you know, five out of the last zero sovereign debt crises on the part of the United States. We're always saying, you got to worry about the debt and deficit. You got to worry about the debt and deficit. So far, There hasn't been an economic catastrophe. I really don't think you should hang your hat on that, though, because all it takes is one, right? just one event coming out of left field to upset the whole house of cards. And I promise you, what you're going to get is not going to be something that you like. It's not going to be worth all the leeway that we have right now if we actually have a debt problem or a debt crisis even in the next decade. Is that likely? I don't know. total public debt levels on the part of the federal government of the United States are now 130% of gross domestic product. That's pretty darn high. Even if you only account for the fraction of that debt that's held by the public, that's about 100%. Again, higher than it's ever been. The only question is, how much will market participants take? How high do those ratios have to get before market participants stop being willing to loan money to Uncle Sam at those very low interest rates. And when, once interest rates go up and the cost of debt service goes up, our fiscal authorities are going to have to make some very hard choices. And even behind that, the central bank is going to have some very hard choices to make. If there's a nascent debt crisis right, for United States government debt, is that something the Federal Reserve wants to step in and ameliorate? At that point, the Federal Reserve will be basically backstopping all US government debt. And you know, you talk about crossing the fiscal monetary Rubicon, that would be a giant leap. That would be even worse than what we have right now. So hopefully, it never comes to that. I know that a lot of economists say that that's not likely. I can't help but wonder, though, once interest rates start to go up, and they will when economic activity starts to improve, Right? economies that are doing well naturally have higher interest rates because the demand for capital is high and the economy is doing well that's going to mean that Uncle Sam has to offer higher yield to borrow money to make sure that investors loan the government money rather than putting that capital in some other productive venture. So the question is, once interest rates start to go up and the cost of servicing this massive public debt become very, very uncomfortably high, what's Congress going to do? What's the Fed going to do? Judging by their track record, they're going to do the easy but irresponsible thing. And at that point, uh, there's very, very little to be said other than the US capital allocation sector, the financial sector simply will no longer be the player on the world stage that it once was. And that's a very sad thing. Troubling things to, to think
0: about there. Certainly, it's it's about time for our formal wrap up here as our time is almost completely wound down. But before I head to that formal wrap up, it, it turns out you actually have a forthcoming book on monetary uh, policy. We were just, did you want to talk a bit about that? We were just chatting a bit about that at the break.
1: I would love to chat about my book. So, it's co-authored with Dan Smith, who is a professor at Middle Tennessee State University, and also Peter Becky, who is a mentor of Dan's and mine uh, back at George Mason University. The title of the book is Money and the Rule of Law, and the subtitle is Generality and Predictability in Monetary Institutions. And the thesis of the book is a lot of what's wrong with central banking is because central banks have too much discretion. Policy makers, monetary policy makers, central banks have too much freedom to tinker and are not constrained in any meaningful sense. And so our argument is as long as you have a central bank, the only way to make it effective in terms of macroeconomic policy and lawful, meaning it conforms with the basic jurisprudential tenets of liberal democracy, the only way to have both of those things is for the central bank to be forced to follow a monetary rule for maintaining short-term economic stability And so what I think is actually very interesting about our book is we don't wade into the messy debates of what rule is best. We are arguing for rules per se. We're simply saying that there needs to be a rule and that rule needs to constrain the hands of central bankers and force them to focus one hand on the money supply and maintaining some sort of mandate for short-run economic stability. That's going to do a lot of good to stemming a lot of this irresponsible behavior that we saw in the 2008 financial crisis, and that got even worse in the COVID crisis. So if you've got a central bank, the only responsible thing to do is for it to follow a rule, force the central bank to follow a rule that the central bank does not itself get to choose. It cannot be a judge in its own cause. And the entirety of the book is spent defending that uh, proposition, which in macroeconomic circles is actually pretty, pretty controversial. So that's why it requires an entire book length defense.
0: Looks like we'll have to have you back when the book's out then.
1: I would love to come back and talk about the book when it's out. And the meantime, I encourage everyone to go check it out. Uh, we also got Cambridge University Press to offer a lower price paperback edition. So you don't have to pay the university library hardback price.
0: Perfect, that's what I like to hear.
1: <laughs> so it's
0: about time for our formal wrap up here. So let's just jump into it. Let me just say, Alex, we, we've talked about a lot. Let's try and bring the conversation full circle and put a finer point on everything we've explored today. So let me ask you, what do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on whether central banks, specifically the Federal Reserve, got COVID-19 right? If there was one or two or just a few things that you wanted somebody to pull out of this conversation, if anything, what would that be?
1: It would be about the Rubicon that we've already talked about. Central banks around the world, especially the Federal Reserve, have stopped doing monetary policy and are now doing de facto fiscal policy. That's massively in excess of their mandate. There's no reason we would want them to do it. We don't have any reason to suppose that they can do it particularly well, and it's going to create a whole host of bad political and private sector incentives over the next couple of decades. So I think that we have a pretty short window here to rein that in and make sure that that sort of thing doesn't happen again. And we need to, if we want to stop those bad effects to follow, we cannot have central banks who are supposed to be doing monetary policy, doing fiscal policy. Fiscal policy is properly the prerogative of the people's representatives assembled in some legislative body, not unelected bureaucrats.
0: Alex Salter, thank you very much for joining me on the Curious Task today.
1: Thanks, Alex. It's been fun.
0: This episode of The Curious Task was produced by Alex Aragona and Sabine L. Chidiak. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you heard on today's episode was created by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona. Thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.